Well, good morning. It's good to see you all again. We are at time, so I think we will dive in. Lots of ground to cover, and we will not make it as far as I originally planned, but we'll get as far as we can. I will open us uh, in prayer after I read Psalm 25, verses 11 to 15. That will be our opening for our prayer this morning. And the reason I chose Psalm 25, um, the themes that are prominent in Psalm 25 often have uh, overlap with what we're looking at in Deuteronomy. That wasn't planned by me. It just kind of happened to work that way. And so this morning, we will come in Deuteronomy to Israel beginning to take over land of the Amorites. And we will see in Psalm 25 here in just a second who it is that the Lord gives his land to and who does not receive that inheritance from the Lord. So Psalm 25, starting in verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known his, to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for opportunities like this that you've given to us. We think of this day that you have encased for us. You have told your people to set aside one and seven as a Sabbath unto you. And so this Lord's day, that is what we do. And this precious hour that we have to meditate over your word is one that we hold to be very valuable. And we pray that you would bless our meditation this morning. As we look at your word, we ask that you would grant us further insight, but not knowledge for knowledge's sake alone. We pray that you would grant us increased knowledge that we might live better before you, that we would be instructed in the way, and that you would cause us to fear you, that we might be called your friends. We pray that you would bless us to that end as a result of this hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 26 is where we pick it up. As you're turning there, a very brief review. Deuteronomy begins with Israel's being told to leave Sinai. God commands Israel to leave Sinai. Moses refers to it as Mount Horeb. And they are to travel to Kadesh Barnea, where Israel was commanded to penetrate the land of Canaan from the south. If you have your maps today, today is the day they might be helpful. Uh, There are a few left over on that table if you don't have them from previous weeks. Israel is told to penetrate Canaan from Kadesh Barnea. On their way, or perhaps even before they go, Moses appoints elders to share the load of this bickering people. Once they arrive to Kadesh Barnea, they refuse to obey God. They continue to bicker with him. First, they refuse to engage the enemy, and then second, when they are told to turn around, they refuse to do that too. So it's kind of a twofold rebellion The Lord then condemns them to 38 years of wilderness wanderings, rounded off to about 40 years, until the generation of the fighting men who refused to take the land, and that generation of men who also presumptuously fought after the Lord said he wouldn't be with them, after they all died out. That's what the 38 years of wandering were about. After all of that, Israel works her way northward on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and the Jordan. And as we saw last week, they went both through and around uh, both the land of Edom and the land of Moab, likely going through their territory, but seeing how they're somewhat semi-nomadic people at a distance far enough that they were not deemed to be too great of a threat on the road they took. We have just crossed... Through Moab, 
The Israelites have just crossed through Moab. And chapter 2 has this summary statement in verse 16. As soon as all the men of war had perished and were dead from among the people, the Lord said to me, Today you are to cross the border of Moab at Ar. They are to go north from Moab up into the territory of Sihon the Amorite. That is where we pick up this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 26. You will remember that as Israel passed through Edom and Moab, she was told to buy all of her food and drink from the Edomites and from the Moabites. God would not give Israel any of their lands. And as part of a non-contention policy, Israel is to offer to pay her way through these lands which was beyond what any people were expected to do. But the other reason for that is it also assured the Moabites and the Edomites that Israel is not there to forage through uh, her land, through Moab and Edom's land, as invading armies would do. Rather, they will buy all of their food. As they approach the northern border of Moab, they are specifically told now to engage uh, Sihon in battle. So both with Edom and with Moab, the Lord said, Do not contend with them. Do not harass them. Do not engage them in battle. I will not give you any of their land. In chapter 2, verse 24, that command is reversed in regard to the people of Sihon. So chapter 2, verse 24, Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his land begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Moses' first act of provocation then comes to us in verse 26 when he sends a delegation of peace to the king of the Amorites. Verse 26, where we pick up this morning. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedmoth, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace. Now, isn't that odd? Two verses earlier, they were told to engage him in battle. Moses' first act is to send a delegation of peace. Two things might be worth pointing out there. First, Kedmoth is actually on the northern side uh, of the border of Arnon. It is technically in Sihon's territory, so Israel is not waiting to cross into Sihon's territory. They're already there. And so Moses sends this delegation saying, we want to just pass through, go to our land, and there will be nothing more you will hear from us. And in fact, verses 27 to 29 has the terms of peace that Moab sends to King Sihon. So picking up in Deuteronomy 2, verse 27. Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right hand nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot as the sons of Esau who lived in Seir and the Moabites who lived who live in Ar did for me until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving us. There are three things that Moses emphasizes. The first is we will stay on the road, we will not go into your fields and pillage what you have planted. We will leave it for you. We are not acting as an invading army. Rather than pillaging the countryside... Sihon is to sell Israel her needed provisions for which she will pay. Verse 28. The third thing is Israel's destination lies on the western side of the Jordan, not in Sihon's territory. Did you catch that at the end of verse 28 and verse 29? Only let me pass through on foot, then towards the end of verse 29, until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving us. To support their claims of honest dealing, 
Moses claims that Moab and Edom allowed them to pass through on foot. The numbers narrative doesn't necessarily agree with that exactly, but as we've seen, uh, if we are to really pay attention both to what Numbers says and what the book of Deuteronomy says, somehow Israel is said to have gone through their land without having contended with them, and yet at the same time having gone around at least where the main population of the people are. So uh, the way I resolve the problem is uh, they went through but were not close enough to be a problem. Many commentators will say, well, Moses is just kind of stretching the truth here. They didn't really let them pass through. Um, But I don't think we need to go there. We can simply say what Moses claims in saying that Edom and Moab allowed him to pass through, he's saying based on our historical record, we are a peaceful nation not looking to do battle with these people who let us go through their land. But we still have the deeper issue to deal with, which is why in the world would Moses send a delegation of peace immediately after the Lord tells him to contend with Sihon in battle? Two things to say to that. First, on principle, Sihon is an Amorite. And if we were to go back to Genesis 15, one of the people groups that Abraham is told his descendants will dispossess are Amorites. So far, they've ran into Edomites, they've ran into Moabites, they've been told not to contend with Ammonites. Moab and Ammon, by the way, are sons of Lot, connected to Abraham. Edom is a descendant of Abraham, so don't mess with those connected with Abraham. I am giving Abraham the Amorite territory, which is why, oddly enough, outside the land of promise, Moses is told to engage Sihon. The promised land was not east of the Jordan. The promised land was all west of the Jordan. So why be told to fight those outside the land of promise? I find the simple reason to be he's an Amorite. And the Lord promised Abraham, you and your offspring will dispossess the Amorites. And so there is an ethnic strain that is going on here as well. Now, historically, because it lied outside the promised land, historically, through the rest of Israel's history, this land was always kind of viewed as second-rate promised land. It's not full Israelite land. And in fact, the only reason that any tribes settled here to begin with is because Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh's tribe requested that they settle there after these territories are taken in battle. The Lord did not say these lands are to go to these tribes. It wasn't given by lot as much of the land on the other side of the Jordan was. It was requested. Uh, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh said, we have lots of cattle. This land is good for grazing. May we have it. And Moses agrees to that and gives it to them. And so since it lies in ambiguous territory, it's not Israelite territory, but it's not not Israelite territory, the rules for engaging that land are different than they are in most other cases. So let's go forward now to Deuteronomy 20, where we learn what Israel's policy is to be in warfare. Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, which is exactly what Sihon ends up doing, as we'll see, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Now here, verse 15 is a statement that looks back on everything that was just said in verses 10 to 14. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations 
here. What Moses has primarily in mind when he says, not the cities here, he's referring to the land of Canaan, where Israel was to make no, com- no covenant, no pact, no agreement with any of the inhabitants. The policy of those who inhabited Canaan was completely destroy them, every single individual. Men, women, feeble ones, which includes children, and the very old and decrepit. You kill them all. That's the policy for Canaan. But for those who are far away, the rule is a little bit different. So that was verse 15. Let's go forward in verses 16 to 18, just so we kind of catch the whole thing here. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, which, here's the question. Is this land, east of the Jordan, intended to be for Israel's inheritance? But in the cities of the peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. Remember that phrase, devote them to complete destruction. You may have a different translation. Um, Does anyone have a different translation than devote to complete destruction? Completely destroy? Utterly destroy? I think that's a common one. Okay. Now here he qualifies who shall be completely destroyed or utterly destroyed. The Hittites and the Amorites. Remember, Sihon is an Amorite. The Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. So the whole point of what appears to be a genocidal war is actually a theological war. Destroy them so that you do not learn to do as they do. This territory on the western side, on the eastern side of Jordan, is it inheritance territory? Well, it always lies outside the promised land, but it is occupied by Amorites. And so we kind of have this, it is and it isn't. And so when it comes to engaging in warfare, what are you to do? You do and you don't, right? You, you offer terms of peace as if it is a nation far away. But since it is an Amorite king and you're specifically told the Amorites are to go, you do with the Amorite king and his people everything you're supposed to do to the Amorites, which is you completely destroy them, uh, devote them to complete destruction. With two opposing commands, what is Moses to do? Do I offer peace or do I attack? That's the conundrum Moses seems to be faced with here. And what he does is he simply trusts the promises of God. Back to Deuteronomy 2, verse 24. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Those are the commands. Rise up, set out, journey, go over Then a promise, Behold, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Now more commands. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. Notice that the promise lies in between the commands. So when Moses is given these two, what appear to be opposing directives, do I offer peace or do I contend in battle? You obey the command. You offer peace, and you trust that the Lord is going to give him into your hand, and you will contend with him in battle as well. So, do as the Lord says, and trust providence. That's exactly what Moses does. He does as the Lord commands. He sends peace, and what is the result? Chapter 2, verse 4. We read through verse 29. We'll pick it up now again. Verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as it is 
this day, as he is this day. Sihon attacks at his own will, and he does so according to the plan of providence. Moses responds, and Israel responds with battle. Now, what this does is it makes Sihon the new Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh was marked as the man who was hardened in heart, both by his own actions and by the Lord's providential working. Sihon has the same thing. He attacks as a result of his own will, but he is influenced, you might say, by the Lord's hardening work. This is a true fresh start for a new generation. That generation that was pulled out of Egypt under Pharaoh's hardening is the generation that all died in the previous 38 years. That's the generation that just died. New generation arises. Similar challenges are faced, though clearly a little bit different. Sihon, a powerful ruler, preventing Israel from inheriting the promises, the Lord hardens his heart, seems to make Israel's way more difficult. The Lord your God hardened his heart. So Israel here has a fresh start. How will she respond is the big question. Verse 31. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have given him into your hand. Oops, skip the line. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Eor, which is on the valley, edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is on the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon, Lot's son, brother of Moab, not brother, cousin of Moab, you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river of the Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. That is where we did not go. Let's go back real quick to Exodus 7. There's one matter I think we need to catch. Exodus 7, verses 3 to 5. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring all out the people of Israel from among them. The Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart for his own glorification. The Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I do this great thing. In Deuteronomy 2, as Moses reflects back, remember he's giving a sermon now to the children of Israel right before they enter the land of promise. At this point, he's, he's reflecting on history, recent history, but reflecting on history. He doesn't say the Lord gave Sihon into our hand for his own glory. Rather... What happens is he gives the people of Sihon over to the Israelites for the Israelites' glorification. 
He does it, Moses emphasizes, he is the one who did it, but he did it for the sake of glorifying his people. Chapter 2, verse 30. Sihon, king of Eshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as it is this day. Now, Israel responds to that faithfully, but the Lord hardening Sihon's heart, giving him into the hand of the people of Israel, is exactly how he accomplishes what he said he would do back in verse 25. We've spent a good deal of time in verse 24, where Israel is told to battle Sihon. Now let's pay attention to 25 and see what the result of that battle is supposed to be. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. So what the Lord does is he glorifies his own name and his own power through the exodus. He glorifies the arm of his people through the battle of Sihon, And he creates a report or a reputation about his army that is going to spread like wildfire before them as they go into the land of Canaan. Wrapping all that together, obedience uh, obedience to God is the pathway to true glory, both now and later. That is particularly true when we are faced with what appear to be two possible and yet contradictory pathways, right? Moses could either choose, in a sense, do I simply go forward and battle with him or do I offer him terms of peace? What am I to do? The Lord told me to battle, but he has also laid out these rules of engagement outside the land of promise. What am I to do? And he obeys what is to be done outside the land of promise. He offers terms of peace. That seems to be an unnecessarily gracious thing, doesn't it? When he's told, go and battle, he offers peace. And that results in the glory of the people of Israel. When Sihon responds to it the way he does, But it also solves the riddle of why God would create difficult situations for his own people. Why harden Sihon's heart and make Israel's way difficult? So that Israel would be glorified through the battle. That's why the Lord does it. And so we respond, therefore, to difficult situations in faith, trusting the promises that God has laid out. And this results in what is arguably Israel's greatest achievement in um, defeating both Sihon and Og together. Uh, Those two uh, create a uh, climax of sorts uh, in Israel's history of her achievements. We made it through at least verse 30. Thoughts or questions over all of that? Very well. We'll very briefly go through verses 31 to 33 here. We read it, uh, but a few notes are are worth uh, mentioning over it. Verse 31, for the second time they are told to pay attention. So, uh, verse 31, And the Lord said to me, Behold, that actually is in verse 24 as well. Verse 24 is fronted with, Behold, It's not translated for whatever reason, but it is there in the Hebrew text, and it appears again in verse 31. So Israel is told to pay attention because God has given Sihon into their hand, and they are to respond by beginning their engagement and battle with him. They do that faithfully. And then they devote Sihon to destruction. That is explained in verse 34 and following, and we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction 
Every city, and what did that look like? What did it mean to devote to destruction every city? It meant they killed every man, woman, and child. Men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. Now Israel, if this were a battle entirely outside Israel's purview, Israel would have free access to the women and children. Right, That was part of the rules of engagement in battling a city far away from Israel. Kill all of the men if they come out to battle against you, but you may take the women and the children and all of the plunder and the livestock to your heart's content. But here, they devote Sihon and his people to destruction. Now again, part of the result of that is the ambiguity of the land that they are fighting in. They are not free, in this case, to take women or children as plunder because they are Amorites, and therefore they are to be annihilated. They are to entirely wipe out the inhabitants. But neither are they commanded to give everything to God as firstfruits like they were at Jericho. So you will remember when Israel crosses over the Jordan and they come to Jericho, the Lord defeats Jericho kind of on his own, more or less, right? Makes the walls collapse. People of Israel go in and they clean up. They are not to take a single article out of Jericho. Rather, they are simply to burn the entire city. Famously, Achan didn't. He took something and it went poorly for the people of Israel in their next battle. So in the case of Jericho, when Israel truly crosses the Jordan and enters the promised land, everything goes to God when they devote it to him. In every case after that, they follow this pattern right here. We kill all the men, the women, the children. We plunder the city. In many cases, we burn the city, but not in every single case do we burn the city. That seems to depend a little bit on its prominence. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 2, there is no mention made whatsoever as to whether or not they actually burned the city. What is known is that they simply killed all of the inhabitants who were there. Now Moses ends on a note of encouragement for those who are preparing to enter Canaan who are going to follow this same pattern. Verse 36. From Eror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near. And then he, he simply reviews what has been left out. So Moses says, remember how great those cities were when you come to the Canaanites, whose who intimidated you by their high cities and by the tall stature of the people. Remember what great cities we conquered in Sihon's territory. So he has a pastoral application to this historical review, which is, be encouraged. You've done it before. The Lord will lead you to do it again. One last thing I will mention about Sihon before we move on to Og. If you're looking at your map, you will see that the territory of Sihon lies directly north of Moab. And it runs from the Arnon Valley up to the Jabbok Valley, which is partway through the Jordan. Am I... Do I have any head nods for confirmation? I don't have the map right in front of me. Does that look about right? Okay, from the Arnon to the Jabbok. That territory that Sihon occupies, Sihon took in conquest from the people of Moab shortly before this happened. Well, sometime before this happened. I can't say shortly, but sometime before this happened. Sihon defeated the Moabites, took all of the land from the Jabbok down to the Arnon, from the people of Israel. I mention that for two reasons. One is to say the people that Israel fought in Sihon and all his people, they were an intimidating force. They were a powerful people. 
They pushed Moab back. The second reason I mention that is simply a, uh, a textual issue. You will notice back in Deuteronomy 1, Verse 5, when Moses is, or whoever is explaining where Moses gave these addresses, Deuteronomy 1, verse 5, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab. Well, it's not actually in the land of Moab. It's in the territory he took from Sihon. It is still referred to as the land of Moab, or the plains of Moab, because it previously belonged to Moab, And at a later historical date, Moab retrieves some of this land back from the people of Israel. So, for example, uh, Ruth, when she comes out of Moab, um, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. I don't remember when Moab takes some of that land back, so I'll just be quiet. Uh, At some point, though, uh, Moab does take some of this land back, so it uh, reverts again to being the land of Moab. So it says in Deuteronomy 1.5, this took, Moses' address took place in Moab. It didn't. It took place in the land that Sihon took from Moab. And uh, the, the historical memory of that kind of lingers on. All right. Chapter 3, verse 1 to 7. I'll read it all. and We'll make a few notes. Then we turned and went up the way of Bashan. One might wonder why they went north instead of crossing the Jordan like Moses said they were going to. They seem to go out of their way to battle Og, right? Og is north. The promised land is west. They have free access to the promised land. They they possess the plains of Moab, where they're sitting, and from where they will penetrate the land of Canaan. Why go north? It would, seem to take, it would seem best to take that again as the implication of chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, and the fact that Og is an Amorite as well. Uh, so those, those two things are important. Um, and also, of course, the Lord tells them to continue to go north in verse 2. So we turned and went up the way of Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Adrei. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left." And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of the Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children, But all the livestock and the spoil of these cities we took as our plunder. Moses here not only mentions the impressive or imposing uh, walls of the city, here he adds to that another layer. High cities, fortified very high, high walls, gates and bars, 60 cities. We took so much out of Og that it was absolutely Incredible and impressive. The reason, though, that they did so is because it was a gift of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 2. The Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. Verse 3. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also. This is the same as in chapter 2, verse 36, and chapter 2, verse 31, in reference to Heshbon. The idea that the Lord has given these kings and their nations to the Israelites is prominent. 
by focusing on God's gift of these kings and their territories to Israel, Moses is signaling that the outcome of the battle, and as long as Israel remains faithful to her trustworthy commander, that he will give them victory everywhere they go. Where you go, I will give you victory, and the giving is important. All things are in the Lord's hands, and he distributes to all as he desires. So we came through chapter 2. I've given the territory of Edom to the Edomites. I've given the territory of Moab to the Moabites. I've given the territory of the Ammonites to the Ammonites. I've given this land to you. So the Lord claims in his giving that he does so as the Lord who is sovereign over all of the nations. Now this leads us directly into the issue of devoting to destruction. It was mentioned with Sihon, and now it is mentioned again, more prominently even, with Og. Chapter 3, verse 6, And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon. Now it's repeated again, Devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. What does it mean to devote to destruction or utterly destroy them, as other translations would have it? They did, indeed, utterly destroy them, but that is an implication of what they are doing, not not the exact action they are taking. Uh, If I can make a distinction between those two things. The word, uh, there's one word in Hebrew that means to devote Uh, Harem is the word, and it means simply to devote to God. In fact, the most explicit or easiest to understand passage to understand what it means comes in Leviticus 27, verse 28. Why don't we turn there, last chapter of Leviticus, chapter 7, verse 28. The word is used repeatedly. And it gives us some insight as to what is going on with this devotion thing. Leviticus 27, verse 28. But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord of anything that he has, whether man or beast, or of his inherited field shall be sold or redeemed, every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. What it means to devote is to devote to God, to consecrate something as belonging to God and to no other. Now we're going to take three stops here. First is the reason For devoting something to God. Why would someone devote something to the Lord? Sometimes people or individuals, people groups or a group of people or individuals were commanded to devote something to God. At other times they might voluntarily devote something to the Lord as part of the fulfillment of a vow. You all remember Jephthah's tragic vow, right? If he will give these people to me when I come back, I will sacrifice, which is uh, a form of devoting to the Lord. The first thing that comes out of my tent, and it happened to be his daughter when he came back. So the vow is, if the Lord does this for me, then I will do this thing for the Lord. I will devote this thing to God. So devoting can be a voluntary act as well as a commanded act. It looks like, in this case, with the Israelites devoting all of these cities, that it was the program that God designed for the Israelites that in every place they go, they are to devote the nation's inhabitants to God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2, I'll quickly read it to you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, which is any of the peoples that you are facing in the land you are entering, when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. Same word again. You must devote them. So it is a commanded thing in this case. Israel had no choice. 
You must devote the inhabitants to the Lord. And we saw why earlier in Deuteronomy 2. Or Deuteronomy somewhere. Uh, so that you will not learn to do as they do. So the reason for devoting something to the Lord is you will either be commanded to do it or you do it voluntarily as part of a fulfillment to a vow. What then is the result of devoting something to God? When something is devoted, it becomes ceremonially clean. Holy, actually, not just ceremonially clean. Israelites were that, all of them. It became ceremonially holy, not ethically holy, ceremonially holy, which means that the temple or the sanctuary, the priests, are those who, as representatives of God, hold that devoted thing for their use. It is used in the religious system of worship for God. So if a field is devoted to the Lord, that means that the priests live off that field, and that sustains the sacrificial system by sustaining the priests. You sustain Israel's system of worship through having devoted that field or through having devoted that utensil to be used in worship or whatever the case may be. So whatever is devoted to the Lord now belongs to the Lord and nothing can go back to common use. Once it's devoted, it is entirely devoted. And anything that is devoted that is either inherently unuseful for worship or anything that is devoted that becomes defiled gets destroyed, usually by burning. So if it is not useful for worship, it is to be destroyed. That's why our translations say devoted to destruction. It's devoted to God, but because the Amorites are not fit for worshiping the Lord and refuse to worship the Lord is maybe a better way to say it. Because they refuse to worship the Lord, they are therefore unfit for Israel's sacrificial system. The only thing left to do is to destroy them. So time and time again in our translations, we will see devoted to destruction, devoted to destruction, devoted to destruction, and usually it happens by burning. Therefore, the inhabitants are killed, possibly burned. That is what it meant to devote a city to destruction, which is also why the cities were typically burned when they were devoted. Not in every case, it seems. Israel was allowed to inhabit some of them as the, their plunder from the war once they were in the land of Canaan. But many of them, that was not the case. If they were prominent cities, they were often burned as the inhabitants were wiped out. That is the result of devoting something to the Lord. The third thing, why do this? What of reality does this reflect especially when the Israelites devote these inhabitants to destruction. Two reasons. First, it is a statement to the world that everything belongs to God. Sooner or later, we have to do with the God of Israel. In our case, we call him the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his sovereign election... God chose to destroy the Amorites so that the Edomites and the Egyptians might be awestruck by Israel's God and honor him as the Lord of all creation and acknowledge him as the one who is alone worthy of worship. Remember the program? The time of the Amorites is not yet complete. It will come, and I will completely destroy them. But why do that? for all the other nations, for all of them to see, so that Abraham might be a blessing to all the other nations, even by destroying the Amorites. This is like a big evangelistic pronouncement. The God of Israel is the God of the universe. And we show that by devoting these people to destruction. Now we know that everything belongs to God Ultimately, the question is, do we always live that way? Uh, which will actually lead us into the second thing uh, here. It is an exercise in practicing that everything belongs to God. But before we get there, a question.
no one is identified as an Amorite. As, as a people group, they have been destroyed. Um, whether there is some genetic tieback, the Lord knows. No, it was not the priest's job because all of Israel was to be a holy nation, right? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Going back to Exodus 19, 4 to 6, that is the foundation upon which all of Israel's covenant and what should be the understanding of our obligations to the Lord are filtered or at least set on that foundation. So Israel as a holy nation, which actually goes to the second thing, right? If all of these pagans are devoted to the Lord, how much more the holy nation, the army through which God is devoting them. Uh, so Israel is seen nationally as holy, uh, which is an extension of the priesthood, the priesthood's holiness. So it's, it's kind of a, a complicated system in some respects. In one way, only the priests were holy, but yet all of the nation was a holy nation. Um, that's kind of difficult to weed through sometimes. Good questions. Anything else? So the, the question uh, has been posed, what is to prevent Christians from banding together and doing this today? Why was this right and uh, a comparable thing today? Why would that be wrong? Good question. Um, theologians debate that. I would give a couple quick responses to that. First, this was part of the divine program all the way from Genesis 15. The Lord had been brewing these events, we might say, for 400 years, specifically targeting these people. It is limited to this historical time with the Israelites in this particular place. Uh, Israel couldn't do this with other nations. She was strictly forbidden to do this with any other nations, whether they be Egyptians or Assyrians or whatever the case may be. It is these peoples who are to go out and the reason uh, I, would, I would set that uh, on top of the land. The land Israel is to occupy is to be a holy land. And the land purges unholy inhabitants. Uh, is one way you can say it. Uh, the Lord removes those from his land who do not reflect his own holiness. He cast out the Canaanites and all the other peoples who didn't. He eventually casts out the Israelites who don't as well. And then eventually brings them back and all, all, all that. But uh, the idea of holy people in a holy place worshiping her holy God. We don't have a place. Christians don't have a place. We're, we're sojourners. Uh, we operate with a completely different paradigm of our current reality than Israel did. And so there's a, another reason for why we ought not do the same thing. I don't know if that's entirely satisfying, but there's a, a couple of reasons out of many more that could be given. Great. Anything else? Correct. So why would it be so why would they be allowed to leave women and children from a foreign country alive to make offerings? Great question. So uh, in Israel's rules of warfare, why are they allowed to leave women and children from foreign nations alive when they bring them back as plunder? Um, this this is by any means not a, a 
perfect analogy. Um, when, uh, when you are home, think, think back uh, to, when, to when you were a child. Um, if you were home, did your parents have pretty strict rules about what you ought to do when you are home that sometimes got relaxed when you were away from home, right, when you're on vacation, right? Um, There's reason for that. The reason for that is there are habits that form in the place you live that are not necessarily formed in the place you don't. So one of the things about the, the gods in ancient Near Eastern thinking is they're territorial. So if women and children are brought from a land, their gods stay back by and large, right? Their gods are are relegated to that territory. They're not in this territory. This is Yahweh's territory. Um, So other nations would have thought, Israel would have known, no, it's all all Yahweh's, but this is his unique land. And so there's a a division then when you separate the peoples from the land, you also create a certain division between the peoples and their god. The second thing is the habits we form and the patterns of thinking we develop are deeply tied to the places we are. Um, I, I've noticed this even in my own life. When, I'm, when I moved away from home, um, I, I developed new habits because I'm in a new place. And so I developed new routines, and with new habits come actually new ways of thinking. I can easily revert back into that if I go back home. Right When I go back to the farm, I, my mind switches back into habits and patterns of thinking that I had when I was there. And one of the things God is doing is he's, disassoci- he's, he's cutting all of that off. Israel is entering a new place for Israel, at least in, new for the last 400 years. And everyone who is there, cannot, they cannot allow any lingering thoughts or habits to remain because they are integrally tied with false worship. Entirely cut them off. Nothing left. So that new habits and new patterns, new forms of, well, in relation to the land, new forms of worship, which are all directed only toward Yahweh, those can take root and, and grow. And so bringing in a false people into that environment is less of a threat than it is allowing the, uh, the native plants to grow in their soil. Um, that's, that's how I've understood the, the difference there. Anything else? Right, and, and in all of those cases, they were uh, homegrown gods. So they were the gods of the Canaanites, not necessarily the gods of nations that were external to their location. They were the gods that were never completely removed out of the land that they were living in. Um, so they, they just simply failed in their task. Anything else? Okay, one last thing I'll mention here because it goes into this being devoted. So the, the first thing I said is it is a statement that everything belongs to Yahweh, the God of Israel. The second thing is for Israel, so that's the benefit to the nations, the benefit to Israel in particular, is it is an exercise in practicing that everything belongs to the Lord. We do not need to look far for our own parallels. Why did God command one day in seven to be devoted to him? So that we can remember all seven are devoted to him. So that what we grow in on our Sabbath, which is the Lord's Day, Sunday, that can permeate into all the other six days of the week. Uh, it's, not, it's one day set aside for something unique, but that uniqueness is also to grow and feed into what is happening in all the other days. And so uh, the Lord demands that all we do and all we have is his, and he also progresses our experience of that as we grow. So this is actually the way the Lord grows us in sanctification, is he has us continually give more and more and more of what we have to his own service. Uh, think of it uh, this way. This perhaps reflects your own experience. When you were a new Christian, you thought, oh, I got a tithe, 10%. That's a lot of money. It hurts, 
I'll do it. As you age and grow and means perhaps become more available, you think, I can do 12, I can do 15, and, and that percentage can grow. But it started with a tithe, the tenth. You give this, and our, uh, we, we grow into what we're commanded, and hopefully we grow beyond that minimal command to realizing everything here belongs to the Lord. So this is practice, both for what Israel will experience in Canaan, but it is also a step forward in their own sanctification. And so here we have one more gospel moment. The good news is that Yahweh is Lord of all creation, and he is a good God who gives to all people their times and places and patiently grows his people in sanctification and destroys only those who prove resistant to the Lord's will, which is exactly what Sihon and Og both did. So as a light to the nations, Israel devotes those nations to the Lord as a way to show the centrality of Yahweh's claims to the whole earth. All of these belong to the Lord. We are going to show the world that all of these belong to the Lord, and we are going to not only acknowledge, uh, but uh, grow in our ability to give over to the Lord the things that are his, beginning with the things that's not difficult for us to give over to him. The Amorites. Um, We're happy to see them go. And so he can have those, and and it's a, a way that God begins to grow Israel in sanctification. That's all I had for today. Uh, We only made it through verse 7. We'll pick it up next week, verse 8. Thanks.